Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so he said, and so said all the disciples. When last we left our Savior and the disciples, you'll remember that they were leaving the upper room. They had just exercised, if you will, and celebrated the final Passover and sang the Hallel hymns in Psalm 115 through 118 in verse 30. After singing these hymns, Jesus reveals a painful hurt in verse 31. A future hope in verse 32. In this brief passage, Jesus will predict that all the disciples will desert him in verses 31 and 32. One will deny him, verse 33 through 35. The desertion is going to be fulfilled in this chapter by the time we get to verse 56, and then the denial in verses 65 through 69. This will be, by the way, the second time that same evening that Jesus predicts his disciples' desertion and denial. You find that in Luke 22, 31 through 34, and John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38. There are times in our lives when our faithfulness, our love, our loyalty to the Lord, perhaps even to each other, is tested. We warn the world about sin and the consequences of sin. We grieve when the warnings go unheeded. But sometimes we as believers also require reminders, warnings about the problems that that we face, and sometimes we require repeated warnings. We fail. For anyone who is honest with himself or herself, that doesn't come as a surprise. That doesn't come as a shock. Sometimes sin seems to grab the upper hand in our life. Sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances where we doubt God's word or we doubt ourselves, or we doubt our calling or we doubt what's going on. Jesus predicts his disciples' failures. He knows they're going to fall away. 
He knows that after his resurrection from the dead, they are going to remember what he has said and they are going to return to him and they are going to be even stronger in their love and loyalty to Jesus. We find that in John 13, 19 and also again in John 14, 29. And so here in verse 31, the king's prediction, it's a prediction that none of us wants to hear. It's about failure. He says, you will fail in verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The Lord begins by saying that all the disciples will be made to stumble. And he gives the reason, because of me. And he gives the timing, it's going to happen tonight. The word stumble is a very familiar word in the Greek language. It's, it's the Greek word scandalizo. You laugh because you recognize that word. Scandalizo. We get the word scandal. We, we understand what that word means. It's something particularly, particularly grievous. And, and so it, the word itself actually meant to trip up. It could mean to trap depending on the context. It could mean to trip or trap. Or to stumble. In other words, some object is placed in your way. And you want to go in a particular direction. But something keeps you from going where you need to go. And it will indeed be a long night. In the garden of Gethsemane. It begins now. At the end of verse 30. And then continues all the way to verse 56. The Lord sang the psalmist's wail in verse 30. Now he quotes the prophet's warning in Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7. The sheep being scattered applies both to the scattering of the disciples because of, of what's going to happen in the betrayal in the night and the coming of the guards. But also because of the subsequent dispersion of the, of, the, of the Jewish people. In Zechariah chapter 13 verse 7 it literally reads. Strike the shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. So why in the world would God command the shepherd to be struck down? Without a shepherd, the sheep are going to be scattered. Without a shepherd, they're going to experience a time of trial and a time of doubt and depression and isolation and severe refinement. The refinement process, even though you don't always see it and I don't always see it, the refinement process isn't meant to hurt us and or to forever disqualify us or to make us go away. The refinement process is meant to strengthen us. It's meant to fortify us. It's meant to intensify faithfulness. The disciples will indeed stagger and they will indeed stumble. 
when later in the evening after Jesus has prayed, the guards are going to show up and they're going to arrest Jesus. They're going to be tempted to think that Satan has gained the upper hand and that God's plans have been dealt a serious, maybe even a fatal blow. But the events surrounding the arrest of Jesus and the trial of Jesus and the death of Jesus is going to result in this amazing and glorious resurrection. Jesus reminds the disciples that the scriptures are fulfilled in him. And so all the disciples will in effect deny Jesus before the night ends and the failure, and this becomes an important part, the failure comes as no surprise to Jesus. And neither is your failure or my failure. Because sometimes you're going to wake up and sometimes things are going to happen and you're going to look up and you're going to go, sorry, Lord. I know this comes as a big surprise. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe not. All the disciples understand our sin isn't simply in falling down. The problem isn't failing and the problem isn't falling down. The problem is in staying down. And I don't know what kind of a world you grew up in or if you've ever been challenged when we had, our, we had a meeting on Saturday about some of the security and safety issues of our church. And, and Jimmy Waddles asked the people who had gathered, how many of you have, been, have, have never been in a fight? <laughs> and only about five or six hands went up. Almost everyone has been in a fight at some time. They've been pushed down. I don't know if you've ever been in a fight and somebody pushed you down and they said, stay down. That's what Satan wants to do. He wants to push you down and he wants to, for you to stay down. When are we most likely to stumble? When are we most likely to fail? In the opening verse, Jesus predicts all of you. Not one of you will stand fast, and we will at times disappoint one another. All shall be offended. Note what it says in the text, because of me. In the original language, it says, in moai, or in me. In other words, the source of this difficulty and falling and, and setback is going to happen because the tragic circumstances surrounding my arrest is going to put you in a tailspin. And again, it shouldn't come as a surprise that people stumble over the identity of Jesus. People stumble over the cross of Jesus. It's 1 Corinthians 1.21. You see, you have to understand something, that part of what's happening is that the prophecies of the scripture must unfold. It must come to pass. Jesus is going to be the sacrificial offering made by God so that your sins could be forgiven. All shall be offended because of me, Jesus says. People stumble over Christ's invitation to pick up their own cross, which God calls us to bear. In Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says, 
take up your cross just like I'm going to have to carry the instrument of sacrifice and suffering from time to time. You might have to pick up something that is going to cause difficulty. But note what it says in verse 32. But after I have been raised... I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus not only predicts the disciples' failure, but note his own success. Jesus is going to rise. (laughs) You talk about big butts of the Bible. Look what it says in verse 32. This is going to happen. It makes perfect sense that you don't want to read verse 31 or or believe verse 31 or even for a moment suggest that it might apply to me or to you. But Jesus is going to rise. Even in his prediction for his future resurrection, he states it as an accomplished fact. Read it again. But after I have been raised, it's, he puts it in the past tense, even though it's a future event that is about to happen. Jesus is secure in the knowledge that God is going to raise him from the dead, that he himself is going to come back to life The resurrection is going to be real, it's going to be bodily, and it's going to take place on the planet Earth. I'm going to go before you to the Galilee. The resurrection of Jesus is going to serve as proof that God is not going to be defeated by the disciples' failure, by their desertion, by their denial. And God's plans will not, I repeat, will not, will not be defeated when you have a setback, when you stumble, when you fall. The sheep once scattered are going to reunite under the glorious banner that's marked resurrection. The angel, you'll remember, at the empty tomb in Matthew 28, verse 7, is going to reassure the women by saying, quote, Go quickly and tell his disciples he has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Read it again in verse 32. But after I have been raised... I'm going to go before you to Galilee. It's as if Jesus is saying, you're going to fail. And I need you to get up and go. Have you ever wondered why it's the Galilee? Don't you wish it said in verse 32, I will go before you to Littleton, Colorado. Or wherever it is that you happen to be. But I'm going to suggest to you, why is it that Jesus says, I'm going to go before you to the the Galilee? Again, I'm going to suggest something to you. That Jesus is going to rise from the dead. He's going to go back. He's coming back to life. And he's going to go back to the place where they first met him. And where they first loved him. And where they first saw him. And so I'm going to suggest to you that sometimes, sometimes when you're experiencing that setback and that problem and that trial, that the challenge for you isn't that you are down. It's that that the Satan tempts you to stay down. And Jesus says, get up and go to the place 
where you need to be. You know, it's interesting to me in Proverbs 24, 16, many of you are familiar with this passage. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. I know what some of you are thinking, Pastor, I'm on my eighth time. Maybe even some of you are thinking, I'm on my ninth time. My tenth time. It says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Is, is this God's way of saying that, it's, that Christianity is like baseball? Three strikes and you're out? No. I'm going to suggest to you that when the writer of Proverbs says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he doesn't just simply literally mean, oh, that's one time, and that's two times, and that's three times. I think what he is meaning is that even after repetitive disappointments and failures and going down, the difference between the unrighteous and the righteous, the righteous is going to say, even while they're down, I'm going to get up. And I'm going to go to Jesus. I'm going to get up. And I'm going to go to Jesus. So the Lord invites them to come to him after his resurrection from the dead, despite their fall, despite their, their failure. It's as if Jesus is in effect saying to them, by the way, this is going to be happening, but I'm going to be waiting for you. Have you ever been hurt? Have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever failed? And you are wondering whether or not you could even get up. And you do. And Jesus is calling. Jesus is waiting for you. Think about that day and that night. We've come a long way already in chapter 26, but I just want to remind you of something. Remember the day, this day that we're talking about in Bethany, it began early in the morning. Remember, they made their way to the upper room. You'll remember they celebrated the Passover dinner. You may not know this, but in it's in between the time that takes place between verse 30 and 31 that the events of John chapter 14 is going to take place and John chapter 15 and John chapter 16 and John's gospel 1431 when it, when it says arise let us go hence which seems to indicate that chapters 15 and 16 all of chapter 15 and 16 contain the conversations that they were having as they were making their way to the Mount of Olives. In those chapters, they pass the vineyard and Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the vine and I'm the branch. Or I'm the vine and you're the branch. You can't survive apart from me. It's, it's in John chapter 15 verses 12 through 17 that the commandment is given to love each other. There's warnings about the hatred of persecution that's going to come from the world. And so the, the reason why I'm bringing all of this stuff up to you is because they have experienced a time of unprecedented instruction and intimacy. Why is that important in the context of our conversation? Because you might experience a time of unprecedented conversation with Jesus and intimacy with Jesus. And you go, how is this possible? How could I have been going to church? How could I have been reading my Bible? How could I have been praying? How could I have been staying in fellowship? I'm trying to do everything right. 
and I still find myself doing what's wrong. Or maybe it's worse for you. Maybe it hasn't been a time of unprecedented conversation with Jesus or intimacy with Jesus. It's interesting to me. How do you go from the faith in the upper room to the fall in the garden? The fall is going to take place. And it's not going to be a year from now or a month from now or a week from now. Jesus says, this disaster, this desertion, this failure, this denial, it's going to happen tonight. And it's going to be sudden. And when it happens, I need you to get up. And I need you to go back. And I need you to go to that place where we first met. And so look at the disciples' presumption. Look what, how Peter responds in verse 33. Peter answered and said to him, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. Peter can't believe his ears. Peter understands and recognizes, you know, other people get into trouble. Other people fall into serious sin. Other people have difficulties or problems or setbacks. Peter makes a promise. Peter says, I won't fail. You know, it's the difference between me and God. God doesn't make promises that he don't keep. We're capable of breaking our promises, aren't we? Do you remember how upset you got when someone broke their promise to you? How is it so possible that we can be so upset when people break their promises to us, but we don't seem to be quite so upset when we break our promises to God? Peter says, I won't fail. Jesus said to him in verse 34, Assuredly, I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. A lot of people misinterpret this verse and they're thinking that the, the rooster's crowing over and over again before the denial takes place. Although I think that's possible. What Jesus is in effect saying, remember what we've already learned. Whenever that you read those words assuredly or whenever you read those words verily, verily, when Jesus says, what I'm about to say to you is absolutely true, does that mean that everything he said thus far is not true or less true? No, he's bringing emphasis because he wants to emphasize to Peter, Peter, you're wrong about this. And by the way, do you think he's saying it laughingly or gleefully or in some sort of judgmental fashion? I, I actually don't, don't think so. I think he's speaking the same way that you would speak to a child. Can you imagine your child says to you, I'm going to get 100% on every test I ever take. No, you laugh. Yeah, you're laughing. And you go, that's a noble and a commendable goal. But can you imagine if that's your goal and then all of a sudden you fall short of the goal? How devastating it might be. When I was in college, I had a girlfriend who had uh, a classmate. And she was, in a, she was a pre-medical student. And they were in biology class together. 
And it was very, very, very important that he get good grades in order to be accepted into medical school. And he got an F. And she, she told me, he killed himself. And stupid me, insensitive me, I simply said, why didn't he just drop the class? Why didn't he, he just drop the class? I, in, in other words, I, I think that there's a kind of failure that's forgivable. And there's a kind of failure where you get to go on. And can you imagine living in a world where you don't get to go on after you have made this horrible failure? One Bible teacher writes, Jesus' words to Peter's were solemn because it, and began with the phrase, assuredly I say, instead of being the only loyal disciple, Peter would in fact prove to be more disloyal than the other ten. Not only would he desert Jesus, but he would also deny him three times, unquote. And, and again, remember, Peter has experienced un unprecedented intimacy with Jesus. He's part of Jesus's inner circle. When the young lady is being raised from the dead, Peter is a part of that experience. It's Peter, James, and John. Christians sometimes believe that they should be immune from failure by virtue of their intimate relationship with God. And again, if you've ever asked the question, why in the world would God allow me to fail or for you to fail? We've already hinted at one reason. Sometimes failures come as a part of the refining process that has to take place. There are lots of reasons why we fail. Maybe the biggest reason is found in Job chapter 14 verse 1 where we read, man born of woman is of few days and full of trouble, unquote. It doesn't say believers born of women. It doesn't say make believers born of women. The generic category seems to be that this is a human condition. This is the human circumstance. We as humans are going to have difficulty and experience failure. We live in a broken world. We're part of a broken community. Life has its share of sorrow and setback and trial and trouble. And, and the Bible, and most particularly the Bible, doesn't teach us to say, expect no problem, expect no sorrow, expect no suffering, expect no failure. The Bible says exactly the opposite. Hey, wait a minute. I thought when I became a Christian, all my dreams would become true and all my problems would forever go away. Expect problems. Expect sorrow. Expect suffering. Expect failure. What's the difference between us and the unbeliever? We're going to get up. We're going to go back. We're going to find Jesus. Look at verse 35. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And note, and so said all the disciples. We have every reason to believe James said, me too. 
John said, me too. Philip said, me too. And they go right down the line. When are we most likely to fall? If our text gives us any clue whatsoever, it's when we're offended in Christ. All of you are going to be made to stumble because of me. When can we find ourselves in trouble or stumbling? It's because for whatever reason, some, we're in a place or we're in a circumstance where, where someone says to you, are you, <laughs> are you one of those Christians? And you just go, your mouth shuts, your heart stops, starts racing, and you go, am I going to... Am I going to affirm that I'm a Christian or am I, am I going to deny? Am I going to be ashamed of Jesus or am I going to remain unashamed? Remember, Paul is going to later write, I'm not ashamed of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation. When are we likely to find ourselves in trouble or tripped up? It's when we find ourselves in a circumstance where we're invited to affirm, not deny, our relationship and our friendship with Christ. Number two, when the crowd, particularly the popular culture, rejects Christ in verse 31. Number three, when we fail to see and believe the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Do you see what it says in verse 32? Even though he says, after I have risen, you will meet me in the Galilee. But I've got to tell you, we have every reason to believe as Peter is speaking the words that he's speaking. And the disciples continue to say what they're saying. For whatever reason in their mind, they're not hearing the statement that Jesus made when he says, after I have been raised. It goes right over their head and past their consciousness. Jesus is basically saying, I'm going to be raised. What does he mean? You know what he means. I'm going to come back to life. What, what are you talking about? In order to come back to life, what is that going to necessitate? His death. Is that death going to prove traumatic, catastrophic in their way of thinking? The answer is yes. He says, you know what? The, the circumstances that surround tonight are going to result in my arrest and death. But I, I need to let you know, I'm coming back to life. And sometimes, sometimes in the midst of that trial, sometimes in the midst of that failure, sometimes in the midst of that catastrophic thing that you've just experienced and you think that there's no coming back from, Jesus reminds you, I'm going to die for that sin as well. And for this sin as well. And for that sin as well. And for this failure as well. And as for, for that failure as well. And some people are going to think, aren't people going to be tempted to take advantage of grace and the generosity of Jesus? Some people will. So you can do one of two things. You can pretend that you don't have a problem. Or you can admit that you have a problem. You go, Lord, I am so grateful for grace and for mercy. And no matter what's happening, no matter how difficult the trial, no matter how horrible the setback, I am going to get up. Remember the difference between a 
pig and you is that the pig stays in the mud. But when you find yourself in the mud, you need to be able to say, I don't belong here. This is not where I belong. When are we likely to fail? When we see, when Jesus reveals our weakness in verse 33. When, when I am weak, Paul says, that's when Christ is strengthened within me. But yet when Jesus reveals our weakness, when Jesus points out that there's some difficulty or some setback, often we are unwilling to admit that weakness. And so when are we likely to fail? When Jesus says, you have a problem in this area, and we say, no, I don't. And number five, when we exaggerate our strengths, when we exaggerate our abilities, when we exaggerate our faithfulness, when we exaggerate and we act on presumption rather than what Christ has said in verse 35. So how are we to think of Peter's presumption? How are we to think of his overconfidence? After all, remember, Jesus is the one who called Peter the rock. It could very well be that that's exactly what Peter's thinking. How could I be anything less than the rock? You called me the rock. But Peter's problem is manifested in the moment. And pause as I say this as clearly as I can. Peter's problem begins when he doesn't believe what Jesus has to say about what's about to happen. That makes sense to you, doesn't it? The moment that Jesus says something, the moment that your response is, no, Jesus, you can't mean that, the chances are we're in trouble. If I could just impress upon you anything at all this morning, it would be that the moment when Jesus says, expect this, that you expect it. So, so think about this for just a moment. Peter's problem begins the moment that he decides not to believe the word of Jesus in verse 31, the word of Jesus in verse 32, the word of Jesus in thir verse 34. But the second problem takes place the moment when he unwisely compares himself with his peers in verse 33. Note what he's saying. Even if all of these other people flake out on you, I won't. What's the problem with that? Pause for just a moment. I'm going to suggest to you that in all sincerity, Peter believes this. But it's pride. It's pride, plain and simple. Others may be offended by Jesus, not me. Not ever. Others may be weak, not me. Not ever. Others are capable of this kind of epic fail. Not me. Not ever. Peter, for a brief moment, finds himself in the unenviable position of believing with all of his heart that he's stronger and better and beyond everyone around him in loyalty and spirituality. How much time have you spent with Jesus? How intimate have you been with Jesus? Peter could 
catalog and chronicle all of the events that we've read about in all of the chapters in Matthew. You can go back to Luke and all of the Gospel of John. Peter's boast is shared by the disciples. Peter and the disciples at this point Remember, they're blind to the cross in verse 32 and 34. It's that cross that's going to cause Peter to deny the Lord. It's that cross. Jesus has repeatedly told them about the cross several times. Peter can't bring himself to believe that it could possibly be true. Even after Matthew 17, 22, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. They're going to take me. They're going to kill me. Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to take me. I'm going to be put to death. And their response is no. But remember, this is the gospel. This is the central message of the gospel. It isn't the life necessarily of Jesus or even the teachings of, of Jesus, but rather it's this central moment of sacrifice which is going to be the seminal, the, the, the substantive thing that has to take place in order for sin to be removed from our life, in order for us to have a right relationship with God and go to heaven. It was too much for him to fathom and grasp. Peter fails to understand the severity of his sin the sinfulness of his pride, the sinfulness of what it means to be a human being, and the solution that is going to require the death of Jesus. And when we underestimate sin and its power, it's an invitation to fail. Jesus warns his disciples about the deceitfulness and the weakness of the human heart. And Peter and the others simply don't believe what Jesus is saying about them. About their personal weakness. They don't believe what Jesus is saying about the cross. They don't believe what Jesus is saying about his resurrection from the dead. So when are we most likely to be offended in Christ? Verse 31, people will stumble over the identity of Jesus. The atheist will say, there's no such thing as sin. The Muslim will say, there's no such thing as God's son. You live in a world where people are going to be bitterly mistaken about who exactly Jesus is. And they're going to be bitterly, bitterly upset over the cross of Jesus. This is why so many people would much rather go to any church whatsoever that will just simply stop talking about sin and stop talking about the cross and stop talking about the need for a savior. Have you ever made Jesus a promise? Did you have every intention of keeping that promise? Only later, Peter, Peter will learn that God's forgiveness is greater than even his guilt. The Puritan, Richard Sibes offers this advice. He says, quote, when you fail, do not let Satan tempt you to discouragement, but come and cast yourself on Christ 
faith and repentance are not one-time acts. You must live your life believing and repenting. But some of you will be discouraged because you'll go, I can't believe that I'm still having this problem. I can't believe that I'm still experiencing this setback. Peter's, Peter's failure will serve as a temptation to give up. And so will yours. Jesus' remedy, get up. Don't give up, get up and go to the Galilee. Where's the Galilee for you? Where's that place where you first met Jesus? Where, where was the place where you were introduced to Jesus, where you fell in love with Jesus, where you discovered that he loves you and that he, he cares for you? And, and by the way, is it possible that your failure is going to be sufficient to discourage Jesus from forgiving you or reconciling you? Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus taught them how to deal with failure. In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, Jesus tells the disciples when they're preaching the gospel and performing miracles, when they're, when they're doing what they need to do, he, he talked about human failure. He said, if people don't welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town as a testimony against them. Jesus is going to be their model. He's going to be our model. Jesus is going to give them power over demons and power over sickness and power over disease and power over disaster. And so when Jesus says, if people aren't willing to receive the truth about him and the gospel, shake it off. When he's talking about shake the dust off of his, his feet, it's another, it's an idiomatic expression, a Jewish way of saying, don't just give up and go away and say, I quit. Get up. Go to the place where you, where you need to meet with Jesus. Faith and repentance are our constant companions. We don't go it alone. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the risen Savior. We obey him. We lay aside the sin that so easily besets us. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the mark, the race that's marked out for us. And what is the race that's marked out for you? You are not just walking, you're running towards heaven. When I was preparing this message, I kept thinking of that DC talk from a long time ago. I don't know if it came out in the 80s or the 90s, but some of you remember it goes, what if I stumble? What if I fall? What if I lose my step and make fools of us all? Will the love continue when my walk becomes a crawl? What if I stumble? And what if I fall? The answer? Get up. Keep going. Don't give up. Jesus has risen from the dead. Embrace the risen Savior. 
And the psalmist said in Psalm 73, 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. God is my portion forever. Get up. God has the power to turn our failure into his success. Our weakness can become his strength, it says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Our ultimate is success is assured, not based on the repetition of your failure, but based on the resurrection of your Savior. The Puritans knew that emotion alone wouldn't suffice. Thomas Watson wrote, The eye may be watery and the heart flinty. An apricot may be soft without, but it has a hard stone within. From those of you who are not a part of the United Kingdom, let me translate for you. (laughs) The modern translation would be, your eyes water, but your heart remains warped. The apricot may be soft on the outside, but it contains a hard seed on the inside. Be generous. Be generous. Jesus is generous with you. Jesus loves you. Jesus wants to forgive you. Jesus wants you to be aware that no matter how big the failure, no matter how epic the fall, He'll take you back. We all fail. We all fall. But has sin hardened your heart? Has sin seared your conscience? Has sin turned off the light so you're not able to see the truth? Has sin taken you in such a way that your first inclination is to run, to hide? to isolate or do you feel that you're above it all incapable of serious sin we all fail we all fall but who gets to go forward the the person who gets to go forward is the one who gets up the person who gets to go forward is the one who sees God as their strength and their portion forever the one who gets to go on is the person who says You know what? The risen Savior loves me. I am going to believe what the Bible has to say. That if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. The one who confesses their weakness and then confesses their need and then confesses that they're willing to trust him. is going to be restored. What if I stumble? What if I fall? Get up. Go to the Galilee. That's the place where Jesus is risen from the dead, where you first met him, where you first listened to him, and you first loved him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I do pray in particular for that person who's experienced an ongoing struggle, stumbling, falling, losing their step, 
questioning whether or not their failure was sufficiently severe that they are disconnected from your love and your care and your concern. But Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them, that you would say to them what you said to the disciples. Get up. Go to the place where I am. Strengthen your brethren. Fulfill the ministry that I've called you to. And so again, Heavenly Father, I pray. I pray for every man, every woman within the sound of my voice. Isolated. Estranged. Overcome with guilt. Lord, I pray that you'd forgive them. That you would wash them that you would reconcile them. Lord, I pray that you would soften their heart and weaken their pride and strengthen their resolve to go to the only place <clears throat> where forgiveness is found in Jesus. Amen. Let's.